this point, I introduce uh, the, the sermon by way of the video. This is one of those no video mornings. I know. So I think it'll go okay. We'll see. Uh, just a tr traditional sermon illustration, the old school. So the website historyplace.com lists the greatest recorded speeches in human history. And if you peruse their list, you'll find all the greats. You'll find Socrates' apology. You'll find uh, Patrick Henry's give me liberty, give me death speech. You'll find uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg. You'll find speeches by uh, Gandhi, JFK, Churchill, Lou Gehrig, Susan B. Anthony. But you look a little closer at the list of great speeches on historyplace.com's website, and you'll see that this list is incomplete. One of the most famous speeches in human history is absent. What speech am I talking about? Am I referring to Bluto's big speech in Animal House? <laughs> you know the speech, right? Over! Did you say over? Was it over? When the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Yeah, Steve knows that speech. No, that was not the speech left off the list. So, was it Kermit the Frog's graduation speech at Southampton College in 1996? You know this speech. This is a, a high point in American rhetoric. President Steinberg, Chancellor Stillerman, I'm not going to do my Kermit impersonation, but it is, trust me, spot on. <laughs> Distinguished guests and my fellow amphibians, I stand here before you, a happy and humble frog. <laughs> no, that was not the speech left off the list. Well, then, was it Matt Herndon's presidential campaign speech? Matt Herndon's presidential campaign speech to the student body of Parkway North High School in 1991. You have got to have heard about this speech. Uh, this is my official campaign photograph. <laughs> um, but in the speech, I, uh, I, I quoted Sebastian from The Little Mermaid <laughs> in a, a famous line. Uh, the human world, it's a mess. But students of Parkway North, if we rise up, we can make it something better. No, no, if you can believe this, that was not the speech left off the list of America's greats. So, how is HistoryPlace.com's list incomplete? Well, you know. In fact, if you were to, to search the internet, you know what speech was left off. If you were to search the internet for, for a list of history's greatest speeches, uh, the speech that we are talking about this morning is routinely left off these lists. I'm referring, of course, to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, frankly, its absence from the list of history's greatest orations, it's just silly, uh, given the popularity and the influence of the speech. No other speech has made such a worldwide impact. No other speech is as known by so many people. No other speech has just changed so many lives, as have the words of Christ in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Uh, and that's what we're going to be studying here at Rooftop for the next six months in a new series called Religion uh, Redefined. Uh, we're going to be studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount recorded in the Gospel of Matthew uh, has always been regarded as the best summary of Jesus' teachings. In the speech, Jesus uh, inspires us with God's love for the poor and the broken of the world. Jesus uh, challenges us with teaching about righteousness that is daunting and compelling. And he warns us with a message of judgment and wrath 
that we dare not ignore. Now we're going to talk about all that, but first question, why are we studying the Sermon on the Mount? And why are we studying the Sermon on the Mount for six months? Well, just so you know, we actually have a regular rotation of series types here at Rooftop. We'll do a little bit of Old Testament. We'll do a letter from the New Testament. Uh, we will talk about some theology. We might talk a little topically. We also like to do culturally engaging series every now and then. But our home base is Jesus. Our North Star is the life, the teachings, and the person of Jesus Christ. You see, our purpose here as a church, if you don't know, our purpose here as a church is to be followers of Christ, who make followers of Christ, and make followers of Christ. Uh, that's what we're all about. We want to follow and we want to preach Jesus. And while there's lots of ways to preach Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount has always been regarded as the most compelling summation of Jesus' call to his people. The sermon captures the radical love, the radical demands of God for those who dare to follow him. And I emphasize dare. The sermon is almost a dare. Do you mean it? Jesus is asking, do you mean it? Because here's what it looks like to follow me. I mean, if you want to get to know God, if you want to really get to know God, maybe that's why you're here this morning. You want to get to know God. Well, if you want to get to know God in the person of Jesus Christ, you have got to study the Sermon on the Mount. But, why study the Sermon on the Mount right now? I mean, it's always been there. It's always been in Scripture. Why are we doing it right now, at this point in our history, today? And that's actually a good question. You might be interested to know that when we started Rooftop 21 years ago, our first series ever was on the Sermon on the Mount. The first series we ever did here as a church was on the Sermon on the Mount. You should know, though, I will not be utilizing those notes or manuscripts. They're 21 years old. They're an embarrassment to homiletics. <laughs> they're just going to be, I can't, I can't believe God allowed me to preach the gospel when I was in my mid-20s. I can't, I can't believe God is allowing me to preach the gospel in my mid-40s, but here we are. <laughs> anyway, when we started Rooftop 21 years ago in the Richmond Heights Community Center, uh, we started with the Sermon on the Mount, and the logic was very simple. Uh, the logic was that we wanted at the outset to establish ourselves as a congregation at the very beginning. We wanted to establish ourselves on the words of Jesus. Even Jesus himself says at the end of the sermon, he says, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it has foundation on the rock. So Rooftop's first group of leaders knew that if we wanted to build a church, if we wanted to build a, a house with a roof that would, like, you know, stay up there, and if we wanted to do that, build a church that could sustain itself or be sustained through the storms and the trials that we knew would beset any church family, we wanted to build ourselves on the solid rock of Christ's teaching. And praise God, Rooftop is still here. 22 years later, we're still here, not because of anything smart or brilliant that we've done. Trust me. <laughs> we've made so many mistakes in leading and, and, and guiding this congregation. It's a miracle that this house is still upright, but it is. Why is it? It's because we built ourselves on the word of Jesus Christ. Here's the deal, though. We're still building. In fact, we might not just be building. We might here be rebuilding. Maybe you know, rooftop suffered loss the past few years. A COVID divided us. 
Uh, people have died. Uh, we've had some staff transitions. We, we planted a church a couple years ago, which is great. It's doing great. But how fun is it to say goodbye to 75 of your closest friends? Rooftops had a hard few years. Um, remarkably, we're still here. We've survived. But we're not here to survive. <laughs> we're here to thrive. We're here to build. But in order to build, we need to rebuild. And what are we going to rebuild on? We're going to build on, rebuild on the same thing upon which we were originally built. <laughs> the words of Jesus to his people. That's why we've lasted 22 years. It's why we're going to last another 22, because through it all, through the difficulties, through the stress, through the pandemics, we've had as our foundation the teachings and the person of Jesus. That was true. It is true. That will always be true. That's why we're studying the Storm of the Mount, because we want to have another great 22 years, and we want you to be a part of it. While standing with us on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So with all that said, how are we going to do this? Well, we're going to take it a chunk at a time. Uh, the sermon is three chapters long. Uh, honestly, we could spend like a year or more or 20 uh, just meditating, marinating in the sermon. But we're going to move at a reasonable pace. We're going to wrap up around Christmas. Uh, the sermon is roughly divided into three sections, blessings, instructions, and warnings. We're going to start next week with the blessings and then proceed from there. What are we going to do this morning then? Well, this morning we're actually not going to dig into the sermon at all. We're going to step back. And we're going to talk about the, some of the context. You see, I was a uh, communications major in college up at Truman State. Communications, it's uh, kind of like psychology. It's what you declare if you have no idea what you want to do in life. <laughs> but as a communications major, I studied a lot of rhetoric or a lot of speeches I had to study some of history's greatest speeches. And in order to really understand and appreciate these speeches, what do you got to know? You got to know their context. You cannot really grasp, for example, the meaning of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address without knowing that Lincoln delivered the speech on the field at which the Battle of Gettysburg had been fought, which had been turned into a cemetery, and that there were actually bodies still waiting to be buried while he was giving the speech. Uh, you can't understand Ronald Reagan's tear down this wall speech without knowing what wall he was talking about, which was the Brandenburg Gate standing right behind him, separating East from West, West Germany from East Germany. Uh, you, you can't grasp the full meaning of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I have a dream speech until you remember that Dr. King gave that speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to remind people of the unkept promise of freedom that America's leaders had already made. Similarly, we can't really understand Jesus' Sermon on the Mount without pulling back a little bit to talk about context. Context is, is actually something that Matthew, who records the Sermon on the Mount, is keenly aware of. Matthew knows that the sermon takes place in a certain context and that the context is what helps give it its meaning. So this morning, before we actually jump into any of this sermon, we're going to talk about context. Let me go ahead and read you then. Uh, Matthew's introduction, his contextual introduction to the most famous speech ever given, in which we get a glimpse of the context in which it is delivered. So let me read to you Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. Uh, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various de- diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, uh, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, so, so this might seem like a fairly simple introduction to a big speech, um, and, but we learn a lot in these few verses that can actually help us understand the sermon a lot better. Uh, we learn about, for example, the setting, the circumstances, and the audience. Uh, these are three things that if you're a communications major, you talk about all the time. The setting, the circumstances, and the audience. And they're worth talking about this morning. So let's dive in. What do we learn about the setting? The location. And how does knowing the location help us actually understand what Jesus is trying to do? Well, Matthew is very, very specific in telling us where this sermon takes place. He tells us it takes place on a mountain. That's why it's called Sermon on the Mount, not Sermon on the Bus, you know, or Sermon at the Pizza Parlor. It's a Sermon on the Mountain. But it's not just Jesus, there it is. Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. But interestingly, it's not just a sermon on a mountain. It's actually a sermon on a mountain in Galilee. Is that interesting? It will be for reasons we'll talk to in a moment. But first, Jesus talks to us from a mountain. Why is it important that Jesus preached this message from a mountain? Well, many readers draw a connection here between Jesus and Moses the lawgiver of Israel. If you remember in the book of Exodus, after, after God has helped Israel escape uh, slavery from Egypt, he leads them to a mountain. And he takes their leader, Moses, up on top of Mount Sinai to receive the law of God to share it with the people. So plenty of readers uh, see a connection here between Jesus and Moses. Now, this actually might make sense given that, that Jesus... Uh, talks about the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Just like God gave Moses the law, Jesus talks about the law. Now, of course, Jesus has a higher law. It's a a greater law. So anyway, this location, many interpreters understand Jesus to be, or to suggest that Jesus is the new lawgiver in the role of Moses. Now, that might be true, but here's the thing. The comparison between Jesus and Moses only goes so far. Uh, For starters, Jesus talks about things in the Sermon on the Mount other than the law. And also, if there is a comparison between Moses and Jesus, the comparison is not that Jesus is like Moses, right? The comparison is not that Jesus is like Moses who receives the law. The comparison is that Jesus is like God who gives the law, In fact, Jesus is not like God who gives the law. Jesus is God. Jesus doesn't receive the law. Jesus gives the law as God himself. Because in the Bible, when God shows up to speak, oftentimes it happens on 
mountains. You see, this is what happens on mountains. In the Bible, mountains are places of revelation. Mountains are places, uh, not just of revelation, but mountains are places where humanity meets with God. Eden was on a mountain where people and God lived in fellowship with each other. It's on a mountain. Not just a garden, but a garden on a mountain. Uh, Moses met with God on a mountain. Elijah met with God on a mountain. The temple in Jerusalem was built on a mountain called the Temple Mount. In the Bible, mountains are where heaven intersects with earth, where God meets with humanity. So, so think about this. Yes, Jesus is a human. Jesus is a Moses-like figure who goes up on the mountain. But in a way that Moses never was, Jesus is also the God who descends with whom we meet. Jesus is God and man joined together. Jesus is God and man joined together at the intersection of heaven and earth. What does this mean for how we read the sermon? Well, question, have you ever just wanted to know what God, if he, could, if he spoke, would say to you? Have you ever wanted to know what God would say to you? Not, you know, what some preacher would tell you that God might be saying to you, not what a friend would tell you that God might be saying to you, have you ever just wanted to, to put your ear up against the door of heaven and hear what God would say to you? In the Sermon on the Mount, God opens the door and he tells you, here is exactly what I would say to you. In fact, I am saying it to you now. If you've ever wanted to know what God would say to you, here it is. You don't have to go up to the mountain to meet with God. God came down to the mountain to meet with us, and here is what he says. Now, we still have to listen and obey, and we'll have to decide if we're serious about it. We're going to find how difficult the words of God to us are. A lot of us say, you know, well, God, what would you tell me? And God's like, I don't think you really want to know. But if we do, here it is. So that's the setting on a mountain where God and man meet in the person and the teachings of Jesus Christ. But what about the Galilee thing? I said this wasn't just a mountain. It was a mountain in Galilee. Uh, what does that mean? Does it mean anything? Well, this brings us to the circumstances of the speech. Uh, by circumstances, I mean the situation. What was the situation into which Jesus spoke? And this is where Galilee comes in. If you remember... For Matthew's introduction, here's what he says. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Now, Galilee, in case you don't know this, it's a predominantly rural region uh, up here north of Jerusalem. Uh, it's up in the sticks, kind of up, 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 of up out of the way. Uh, and when I say it's a predominantly rural region, don't misunderstand me. By rural, I don't mean like green and homey and quiet. By rural, I mean poor. If you lived out in the country back then, you didn't have access to any real amenities, healthcare, running water, civilization. In fact, if you think about it, it's an odd place for Jesus to begin his public ministry as the king of the universe. It's like him coming down to Missouri and kicking off his reign of the universe in Gerald, Missouri. Have you ever heard of Gerald, Missouri? Of course you haven't, but it exists. 
It's out on Highway 51. I would drive through it on my way to see Grandma. Blink your eyes, you're through Gerald. <laughs> Same thing. Way out on the sticks. But that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is kicking off his kingship in the Sermon on the Mount, and it happens in Gerald. It happens in the backwaters of Galilee. What's really interesting about this is that however odd this was, this was actually long expected. For generations, Jews had expected a Messiah to come to their rescue. For hundreds of years, the Jews had lived under the oppressive thumb of different military governments, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. These oppressors had systematically disassembled the national infrastructure of Israel. And during that time, uh, Jews had developed an expectation that at some point in the future, God would rescue them through a Messiah. The prophets even wrote about the future coming Messiah. One of the prophets, a guy by the name of Isaiah, even had an inkling where this future Messiah would kick things off. Where do you think Isaiah anticipated that would happen? Maybe in a little rural area north of Jerusalem called Galilee. As Isaiah writes in chapter 9, hundreds of years before Jesus, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor, what do you know, Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So anybody reading Isaiah's prophecy would read this and think, why? Why would God come to redeem Israel in Galilee? Galilee of the nations? Like across the Jordan? Why not go to Jerusalem? Why not go to Rome? Why start in Gerald? Everybody knew what Galilee was. Galilee was the outskirts of Israel, filled with pagans and poor people. Galilee was filled with the forgotten, the powerless, the sick, with fishermen, the distressed. But Isaiah knew that those were the kinds of people that the Messiah was going to come for. Later in Isaiah, uh, the, the prophet even puts a fine point on it. In Isaiah 61, the prophet assumes the perspective of the Messiah when he says this. He says, the future Messiah says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, if you know the Sermon on the Mount, you know that that last line of Isaiah is one of Jesus' first lines. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So Jesus is quoting Isaiah, who's talking about the Messiah. Isaiah predicted a Messiah to come to Galilee to proclaim good news and bring healing and freedom. Then this guy shows up in Gerald. And how does Matthew introduce him? Here's how Matthew describes it. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news. That's what Isaiah said he was going to do. He's going to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. He came healing every disease, sickness among the people. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and healed them. These were the circumstances into which Jesus gives his inaugural speech. He is in a distressed impoverished community filled with sick people who have been waiting too long for God to do something about it. Jesus finally arrives to proclaim the good news that their time has come, their suffering will end. That's why they're so excited to see him. And they come from everywhere. 
Because the Messiah who's predicted to arrive in Galilee to heal the sick has come. Why is this important? Do you know why? It's because Jesus is not done making inaugural appearances. Jesus is still kicking things off. And the world is still filled with Galilees. And by Galilee, I mean any distressed, forgotten community filled with hurting and broken people. There are lots of those places. There are a lot of Geralds. I mean, if Jesus were to reappear, which he will, that's where he's going to go. It's not going to start in Jerusalem. I mean, he'll get to Jerusalem on a cross. But where's he going to start? He's going to start in Galilee. He's going to start in... North City. It's going to start among the homeless downtown. It's going to start in Dupo. It's going to start in Reynosa. That's where he's going to kick things off, Reynosa. He might even start, might even start in Afton. This community. I mean, I know Afton's kind of, you know, up and coming. <laughs> uh, we got, uh, got a food truck got a new driving range, uh, breakfast and burger, move into a larger location. <laughs> so Afton is on the up. But are we really? I mean, really? Newsflash, every person in Afton is dying. Every person here is dying. Every person here is hurting. Every person here is suffering. We are Galilee. We are Gerald. We all need to hear the good news proclaimed. What's the good news? The good news is that after centuries of waiting, after centuries of struggle, after centuries of oppression, after centuries of death and racism and sin, Jesus is here. Jesus is not over there. Jesus is here in Galilee to do something about it. And he's asking if we want to do it with him. So what's the setting? A mountain where heaven and earth meet. What are the circumstances? Oppression, poverty, and Galilee. But finally, let's talk about the audience. Who's the audience? Any public speaking teacher will tell you that you have to know your audience. If you don't know your audience, uh, things aren't going to go well for you. I've learned this time and time and time and time again. I've learned that, you know, speaking at a funeral, different than speaking at a wedding. Jokes don't over, go over as well. Uh, I've learned that, you know, the first service crowd is slightly different from the second service crowd, which is slightly different than the third service crowd. In fact, I have to prepare three manuscripts for you uh, one morning. This is my, oh, this is my first service manuscript. That's why this isn't going very well. You've got to know your audience. Uh, so what do we know about Jesus' audience? Aside from being oppressed, sick people in Galilee, what do we know about Jesus' audience? Well, here's what's really interesting. Uh, we've already discussed the circumstances of the audience. But if you read Matthew's introduction carefully, you'll see that for the purposes of the speech, to whom is Jesus speaking? His disciples. As Matthew writes, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's not even standing up. What does it say? He uh, sat down. I mean, if the crowd is there, like, can you stand up, please? We can't even see you. 
Now, now Matthew and Jesus are both aware that the audience, the crowd, is there and they're listening. How, how do we know this? Uh, well, at the end of the sermon, here's, here's what Matthew writes. Matthew says this, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Right? So Matthew knows that the crowd can hear what Jesus is saying, but we also know Jesus is not speaking directly to them. What's going on here? Well, this is actually pretty important. In the Gospel of Matthew, the crowd is a character. The crowd is a, a character in, in, in the book, kind of like a person. The crowd is always like following Jesus around. The crowd is always impressed or they're curious or, or they're amazed or they're angry. Crowds get angry. The word crowd actually occurs in the gospel 41 times. And what we see in uh, Matthew is that Jesus is really good at drawing a crowd. And he snaps his fingers and draw a crowd. But what we also see is that Jesus isn't interested in drawing a crowd. Jesus is interested in making disciples. Jesus came to make followers, people, men, women, young, old, who he could sit down with and talk to. That's a smaller group. Sometimes a very small group. I mean, at this point in the book of Matthew, how many disciples does Jesus even have? Four. He's got four. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So Jesus is sitting down with like his, his four. He doesn't have 12. So we get this picture, this actual picture. I mean, this is kind of how we picture Sermon on the Mount, not how it happened. We get this picture of Jesus sitting down with like his disciples with everybody like trying, trying, trying to listen. Here's the thing, though. I think Jesus is okay with this. I think it's part of the plan. I mean, Jesus wants the crowd. Jesus needs the crowd. Jesus doesn't forget about the crowd. He wants them to hear. He loves the crowd. He came for the crowd. He wants them to hear what he's saying. He speaks loud enough so that they can hear. But the real goal, the real goal is to make disciples, radical followers of Jesus who obey his teaching. And here's how this works in the Gospel of Matthew. Every now and then, someone steps out from the crowd. To become a disciple. Someone takes a step. And then Jesus is actually able to talk to them. And that's Jesus' goal. Through conversation, to turn the crowd into the committed. And maybe that's where you're at. Uh, maybe for most of your life, you've been a member of the crowd. You, you, you've listened to Jesus from a distance. You have been amazed by him. I mean, you find Jesus amazing. You, you've seen him do great things, but you've been standing back. And I get it. You know, it, I, it's safe in the crowd. You can be anonymous. You know, you can avert Jesus' gaze. Like, oh, no, no. You can deflect. If Jesus says something hard, you can think, oh, Jesus is saying that to my wife. <laughs> so I get, I get it. Maybe that's you. I know a lot of you are actually members of the crowd. I mean, some of you have been coming to Rooftop for years, which is great. Here you are. Uh, but you're still leaning back. And here's the thing. I just have to be clear. You cannot follow Jesus as a member of the crowd. You can't even get to heaven as a member of the crowd. Later in the sermon, Jesus is pretty clear about what happens to the crowd. The crowd, that large group of people, they follow the broad path to destruction. It's the few, it's the four who follow the narrow path to life. 
Jesus doesn't want you listening in to what he's saying to other people. He wants to have a conversation about your life with you. That's your opportunity during this series. You want to leave the crowd? You want to become a disciple? Join the God-man on the mountain. Sit down with him and the rest of us to hear what heaven has to say to you. But to do so, you got to leave the crowd. How to leave the crowd? You step out. You join a small group. You get baptized. You confess and repent of your sin with, like, the church supporting you. You become a member at church. You got to step out. We want to help you do that here at Rooftop. Like I said, our goal here as a church, we're not here to attract a crowd. If we wanted to attract a crowd, it would be easy. I would light myself on fire. I, I, would, I would preach politics. That would draw a crowd. I would tell you that God wants you to be rich. That would draw a crowd. But we're not here to draw a crowd. We, we're, we're just not. We're here to make disciples. We're here to turn the crowd into committed followers of Jesus Christ who live forever in the presence of God and one another. We want to help you do that. Uh, one of the ways that we want to help you do that is by praying for you. Uh, we start this new thing on the second Sunday of every month here at Rooftop. We have a prayer response time. Uh, we believe in prayer here at Rooftop. Uh, we believe God meets us in prayer. We believe God answers prayer in fun, surprising, creative ways that maybe don't always go with your expectations. But we believe in prayer. It's one of our key six practices here at Rooftop. And the band's going to come up. They're going to share a song with you that you can sing along with. But if you need prayer, as you follow Jesus or as you want to decide to follow Jesus, come on down. We want to pray with you. We've got a, Denise and our prayer team going to be up here at the front. If you have something going on in your life you need prayer for, we've got a surgery coming up, we want to pray for you. If you want to follow Jesus, uh, we want to pray for you. Um, if Whatever. We just want to pray for you. So during this song, if you feel so led to step out, come on up. The prayer team is eager to, to pray. Uh, if you want to just sit there and sing along, you can do that. And afterwards, I'll come back up and... Uh, We'll finish the service.